Open your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 tonight. And as we're turning there, I'll say simply that sometimes we forget those who have come before us and fought battles, if you will, not physical battles, but battles about truth and have suffered and even died for it. I want to ask this question tonight. How many of you have heard of a woman named Anne Askew? A-N-N-E-A-S-K-E-W. Anne Askew. Anyone? Someone? Some of you? I see a couple hands going up. Anne Askew is a woman that we should know. She's a woman, an Anabaptist in the 1500s. She lived, she was born in 1521. Anne Askew was, at least as far as I have read, the only woman who hit a, uh, hit a double, if you will. She was tortured in the Tower of London and burned at the stake. The only woman that, that, that matches both of those characteristics, at least as far as we can know. She was tortured in the Tower of London um, on the rack. Now, if you know the rack where you're limbs are literally pulled apart by rolling this rack, stretching your body out, and ultimately burned at the stake. What was Anne Askew's crime under the reign of Henry VIII that led her to be tortured in the Tower of London and burned at the stake? One of perhaps the most significant or the most significant crimes, if you will, was her view of communion, the Lord's Supper. Here is what Anne Askew said about the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, the idea that the, the um, elements of communion, the bread and the wine, the fruit of the vine, literally become the body of Christ when they are consecrated. Here's what she said. She said, and as for that you call your God, it is a piece of bread. For more proof thereof, let it lie in a box for three months, and it will be moldy, and so turn to nothing that is good. Wherefore, I am persuaded that it is not God. Fairly reasonable logic to me, at least. Fairly incontrovertible. <coughs> Anne Askew was a woman who maintained something of a sense of humor even to the end. It's recorded by one who apparently edited or revised her own biographical material after her death, recorded that when she was being interrogated by the Lord Mayor, they had this dialogue. Lord Mayor, thou foolish woman, sayest thou that the priest cannot make the body of Christ? Anne, I say so, my Lord, for I have read that God made man, but that man made God I never yet read, nor, I suppose, ever shall read. She had a little bit of a civil, she had a little bit of a tart tongue, you might say. Lord Mayor, know thou foolish woman, after the words of consecration, is it not the Lord's body? And, no, it is but consecrated bread or sacramental bread. Lord Mayor, what if a mouse eat it after the consecration? What will become of the mouse? What sayest thou, foolish woman? And, what shall become of it, say you, my Lord? Lord Mayor, I say that that mouse is damned. 
Now, you need to pause there for just a moment. What's the idea? We're going to see tonight that the view of transubstantiation is that once the elements are consecrated, they remain the body of Christ. They remain the blood of Christ. That is why they need to be treated with utmost honor. And indeed, as we'll see in the Roman Catholic Church, they are worshipped. They are venerated. The idea here is obvious. If a consecrated bread that becomes the body of Christ falls on the ground, even after we have eaten here today, and a mouse comes in and eats it, what is to become of the mouse? The Lord Mayor here was saying that it no less becomes the body of Christ. It still is the body of Christ. But because the mouse has eaten unworthily, the mouse is damned under 1 Corinthians 11. That is exactly what is being presented here. Well, Anne could not, again, main, uh, 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 turn away from her biting tongue. She is reported to have said, alack, poor mouse. Poor mouse, indeed, for the crime of uh, uh, unknowingly, unwittingly eating the body of Christ. Now, why do I say this? I say this because the subject we're going to speak about tonight, the real true meaning of the Lord's Supper, is something which people have died over. They have died over holding to the truth, the, what we believe is the true interpretation of the Christian message and indeed the message of Jesus. And tonight we're going to look at this subject through the lens of John chapter 6. As I said this morning, one of you raised the very good question of what exactly does John chapter 6 mean? When, for example, we look to verse number 53, and I invite you to look there this evening with us. We're going to be spending a lot of time allowing the text to speak to us and trying to glean from that text. Verse 53, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh, literally the body, of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. This caused great confusion in the, among his original hearers, and it has continued to cause confusion. I'm reading to you from the Catholic Catechism. The Catholic Catechism, you can look this up in the second edition of the Catholic Catechism, says this, The Lord addresses an invitation to us, urging us to receive him in the sacrament of the Eucharist. And they quote, Truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. The Roman Catholic view of this passage is that this is speaking directly of the Lord's Supper, of what in the Catholic Church would be called the Eucharist, or I'm sorry, I should say more accurately, the Mass, when Jesus is, his sacrifice is purportedly re-presented um, to God. It is put again before him. Now, is this what Jesus means? Does Jesus have in I the Lord's Supper? And what does it mean about the way we interpret this act of feeding on Christ. That'll be the title of our message this evening, simply Feeding on 
Christ. And let's start with the confusion. Let's start with the confusion when we are talking about this idea of truly feeding on the body of Christ, the flesh of Christ, and drinking the blood of Christ. Notice that this caused real confusion, as I said, among his original hearers. Look with me in verse number 50. This is the bread, Jesus said, which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now look at what comes immediately next. The Jews therefore strove among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now immediately when we ask that question, we're confronted with, a couple of different responses. One response is that of those who would say that's never what he intended. The other response is what the committed Roman Catholic would say. He did intend that. He did intend to give us his flesh to eat. And so tonight, I want to lay out, taken from the Roman Catholic Catechism, the Roman Catholic view of what is called trans- substantiation. Substantiation, the substance referring to the elements. The bread, the wine in the Roman Catholic Mass. Trans means to change. So transubstantiation literally means to change the substance. That is to say, the Roman Catholic view is that once those elements of the Mass are consecrated, their substance changes. They are no longer bread and wine. They are the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. They are no longer bread and wine. Listen to the Roman Catholic Catechism, paragraph 1376. You can look this up. It says, The Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, Because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread... It has always been the conviction of the church of God and this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the holy Catholic church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Listen to paragraph 1377. The Eucharistic presence of Christ, that is the transubstantiation, happens or begins at the moment of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsists. That is to say, it is then always the body of Christ, even if there's leftovers. If it's consecrated as the body of Christ, it remains as such as long as it exists. Christ is present whole and entire in each of the species and whole and entire in each of their parts in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. And this is the view. Now listen to paragraph 1378. It's titled, Worship of the Eucharist. Now, this is entirely logical. What did John do when he saw the living Christ on the Isle of Patmos? What did he do? He bowed down and he worshiped. 
If you were to believe that the Lord's Supper literally became the physical body and blood of, the, of Christ, it is only logical you would be forced to worship because we worship Christ. We worship the person of Christ. So listen to indeed what this says. In the liturgy of the mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ. Do you get that? The real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other things, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist the cult of adoration. The cult of adoration, not only during Mass, but also outside of it, reserving the consecrated hosts with the utmost care, exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful and carrying them in possession. You see the idea. This is just, again, a logical outflow. Now, frankly, I wonder myself how many sincere Roman Catholics actually understand this doctrine and actually, if you were to explain it to them, would entirely agree with it themselves. But nonetheless, this is the stated catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I'll just say briefly that this is not all that terribly different from the Lutheran view of the Lord's Supper, or of what they might call the Eucharist. Here's the Lutheran view, as one author put it. The body and blood of Christ are truly and substantially present, offered, and received with the bread and wine. That's why some have called this view consubstantiation. Substantiation is the substance. Con means with. With the substance. Or, as you might hear Lutheran theologians say, the, the body or the, the presence of Christ is in, with, and under the elements. That is to say, the substance doesn't change. It's still bread and it's still wine, unlike the Roman Catholic view in which those are changed. But nonetheless, in, with, and under comes the presence of Christ, the actual bodily presence of Christ, such that they are truly and substantially present in those elements. Now, I want you to see these, again, these views are connected to this, a particular interpretation of John 6, a very literal one, that Jesus was literally saying that we were to eat his body and drink his blood. Now, I wonder if this causes any confusion for you. And the reason it might cause confusion for you is something that is often charged against conservative Christians like we. One, indeed, that I even saw in an article recently. It was speaking of a pastor or a particular church, and it was saying of them, they take the Bible literally, like, oh, vapors. They take the Bible literally. Now, let me be the first to say we should approach a literal hermeneutic to the word of God, a literal way of interpreting the word of God. But I like the way my father put it. If someone asks you, do you interpret the Bible literally? The answer is no. I interpret the Bible normally. Now, what do you mean by that? The purpose, the idea of interpreting the word of God is to interpret it in light of what its author intended to say. And of course, if we take literal, if we confront passages with an intent and from the text of the passage, the grammar that is used, the history and context of the passage that are clearly intended to be taken literally, what do we take them? Literally. 
if we come across a passage that is plainly intended to be taken in a different way, we take it in that different way. As I said this morning, when Jesus said, I am the true vine, I don't think any of his hearers would have understood to be saying that he was like a green leafy substance crawling around a house, uh, the exterior of a house. That clearly was not his intent. His intent was to be taken in a way that was figurative, not literal. And so we should take the word of God normally. Well, how would we look at this passage in a way that would be interpreting it normally? Let's see not just the confusion, but secondly, the context. We always need to start, as we intend to do in this church, by taking the word of God in context, by, a, by putting it in its context and going from there. And let me pause at this point. This kind of interpretation of scripture takes work. And tonight, we're going to do work together. Because this is the way to interpret and understand the word of God. And I say it that way because it is important for us that when we interpret difficult passages like this, we know it's going to be work. As I've said before, I do not want us to come to church simply to hear the conclusions that I draw from any particular passage, but that we look at the word of God together and draw conclusions together. Why? Because I'm not going to be sitting there when you read the Bible tomorrow morning or on Wednesday morning or on Friday evening. I'm not going to be a resource in, in speaking to you and interpreting this for you. You and I need to learn the tools of interpreting the Bible ourselves when we are here com collectively, such that when you open the Bible on Monday morning to a different passage than John 6, the same tools we have been using in John 6 will apply to help you feed on the word of God in your own reading. That's why, as I like to encourage us, let's have our Bibles open. Let's have our eyes going back and forth from the passage, and we will seek to learn from this passage together. So let's notice the context, and let's start with the temporal context of John chapter 6. This is really important. Go back to the beginning of John chapter 6. This is a very long passage, a long chapter. And where does this start? Jesus has gone over the Sea of Galilee. A great multitude has followed him. And he sits, Jesus, in a mountain with his disciples. Notice verse 4. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. The Passover, as we talked about this morning, was the feast celebrating God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. And it involved food. It involved taste. It involved unleavened bread. It in involved the fruit of the vine. It involved a lamb. Um, it involved bitter herbs. And so Jesus is approaching this feast of Passover, and this crowd is coming toward him. And as we see over the next several verses, Jesus has a crowd of 5,000 men, about 5,000 men, which would be probably ten to 15,000 or more people when you factor in women and children. And all he had to feed was five loaves and two fishes. And we see here that Jesus turns those loaves and those fishes into enough food for that massive crowd of 10 to 15,000 people at least. 
And not only that, there are 12 baskets left over of fragments. So this temporal context is again about physical food being multiplied to meet a physical need. Look next at the rhetorical context of this passage. And we're just going to notice a couple things as we go through this passage leading up to the verses that are in question for us tonight. There are a series from verse 25 onward, a series of contrasts and a series of connections. Okay, I want to I sort this passage out in contrasts that are made and connections that are made. Let's look at these. Verse 25, and when they had found him, these people who had their bellies filled and others who undoubtedly had heard about it, they come seeking him. They found him on the other side of the sea. They said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because he saw the miracles, but because he did eat of the loaves and were filled. He is saying you are concerned about physical things. Now notice the first contrast here in verse 27. Labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endures unto eternal life, or everlasting life, I'm sorry, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Now let me ask you this question. What is the contrast here? There is meat or food that perishes. What is food that perishes? How would we describe that kind of food? Physical food. That was exactly the word that I was looking for, Ted. Physical food. What kind of food is he talking about? A food that endures unto everlasting life. Are you aware of any food, physical food, that endures unto everlasting life? Of course not. So he's contrasting physical food and what kind of food? Spiritual food. Physical food, one food, it perishes. Spiritual food, it exists to life everlasting. Now notice verse 28. Then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? You told us not to work. Their same word, labor. Labor not, Jesus said. Don't work for that food. So they look at him and said, okay, well, what should we do that we might work, labor, the works of God. Now listen to this connection that Jesus draws. This is the work of God, the labor of God, that ye believe on him whom he has sent. So look at again, the contrast. There's physical food that perishes, and there is eternal food, there's spiritual food that gives life, that, that endures unto life everlasting. And the connection that Jesus draws between this work of God and spiritual food is belief. This is the work that you believe on him whom he has sent. Now look at verse 30. They said therefore unto him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Here's what they're saying. Okay, we get the picture, we get the connection, but how do we know that you have that bread? What sign are you, what proof are you gonna give us? Now they say, verse 31, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Here, physical bread. Physical bread coming down from heaven. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus gives them a contrast between Moses' physical food, manna, that they actually ate, and God's spiritual food. Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. Who was the one who gave them bread from heaven? 
not Moses. God did. That's what he's saying. It wasn't Moses. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, if you're someone who marks up or highlights your Bible, underline that word, true. Highlight it. Circle it. We're going to come back to that connection later because it's really important. Notice what he's saying. Moses gave you physical bread or God gave you physical bread from heaven. There is another kind of bread that is the true, real bread. Now notice again, what kind of bread is he talking about? Is he talking about physical bread or spiritual bread? He's again drawing this contrast between what is physical and what is spiritual. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. Here's again that connection. Spiritual food and spiritual life. Life to the world. Now look at verse 35. After they said, Lord, evermore give us this bread, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. So Jesus now is drawing a connection. I am the bread of life. I am the bread that gives life. And how you feed on me, how you, um, how you gain provision from me is you come to me and you believe on me. Remember that connection we've already seen? Physical food that perishes, spiritual food that endures, connected to belief. Now Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the spiritual bread that gives life. How do you feed on me? You come to me and you believe. Okay, draw that connection. We're gonna come back to that. Now I want you to skip ahead because there's some other um, topics that Jesus gets into here that aren't so as germane to our discussion. Go to verse 48. Jesus again comes back to this idea of bread. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. You see again the connection. Physical food and death. It cannot withhold death from you. Physical food will not sustain your life. And then notice, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. Spiritual food coming down from heaven, you may eat on it and you won't die. Physical food leading to death, spiritual food leading to life. And then he says, I am the living bread. Just like he said before, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Now let's pause there. What have we learned to this point? If you were to take all of the context, the rhetorical context of what Jesus is drawing at, what are the contrasts? Physical bread that leads to death, spiritual bread that leads to life. And what is the connection? Do you want that spiritual bread that leads to life? It's going to require coming to me and believing on me. It's about faith. All right, so let's pause there And now I want to talk about, thirdly, the prophetic context. We've looked at the temporal context, the rhetorical context, and let's look at the prophetic context. Go back to verse 51. Notice where we paused. If any man eat of this bread of me, he shall live forever. Now listen to this. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, what's he saying there? The bread that I give is my flesh. Before Jesus said, I am the bread of life, you're gonna have to partake of me. 
Now he makes it even more explicit and more shocking. Because the bread that I'm giving you is my, blood, is my flesh, is my body. Now what does it mean when he says, I will give it for the life of the world? The dominant idea here is sacrifice, is death. I will give my body for the life of the world. And then this is why he introduces in verse 53. Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What's he talking about here? The Lord's Supper and communion is nowhere in view. Communion is still off in the distance. This is before he ever gave the teaching of the Lord's Supper. What is in view here? What's in view when he speaks of giving his body and of drinking his blood, he's talking about sacrifice. He's talking about death. He's talking about freely giving himself on behalf of other people. Now, this would have been so horrifying to the first century Jews. Why? Because they knew the Old Testament law. They knew it was impermissible to eat what with sacrifices? What was the rule of the Old Testament law? You do not eat sacrifices with what? Blood. In fact, you don't eat blood at all. Blood is something significant. The life of the flesh is in the blood. You do not eat it. So when Jesus says to them, you're going to have to eat my sacrificed flesh and drink my sacrificed blood, they would have said, uh-uh. That's disgusting. That is just flat out wrong. In fact, what they said in verse 60, even some of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? The idea of hard there is inflexible, is, is, is really um, difficult to say, and in, in difficult to accept. We can't accept this. Nope. No, we are not buying this. Now again, it's important that we're talking, we're recognizing that Jesus is explicitly prophesying of his death here. He's explicitly pointing to his sacrificial death on behalf of sinners, of his body and of his blood being shed. This is Jesus giving his body that is the bread of life. So let's pause here. The confusion. These verses have caused great confusion, not just among his first hearers, but among those who have come after and said that Jesus is requiring us to participate of his literal physical body and blood at communion or going along with the communion elements. The context here of this whole teaching is a contrast between physical food that leads to death and spiritual food that is leading to life and a connection to belief, to faith that draws the life out of this spiritual food. And now Jesus drives home this context that this bread he is talking about is his body and blood sacrificially given for the life of the world. Finally, I want to talk about the clarity. How are we going to use this context to gain clarity on what Jesus is talking about here in these frankly somewhat difficult to understand 
passages. Let's start launching right in on verse 53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now pause right there. Notice there are a couple things going on right now, right there. Three things that I want you to see. Notice the response or the action of the person listening. Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood. Do you see that? That's the response. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. What is the response of Jesus? If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have what? Eternal life. You have eternal life. And then what is the eternal effect of that? And I will do what? Raise him up at the last day. That person has resurrection promised to them. Okay, take those three things, and I want you to go back now to verse number 40, will you? Verse number 40. This is a really significant clue to understanding what Jesus means here. In verse 40, and this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Apply the first three things that we saw in verse 54 to the three things we just saw in verse 40. In verse 40, what are the responses of the, of the recipient? Not eat his flesh and drink his blood, but do what? See the sun and what? Shout it out. Believe on him. See the sun and believe on him. What does that person have? Everlasting life. And what's going to happen to him at the last day? He's going to be raised up. Do you, know, do you see that there's a, a perfect parallel there? Jesus says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, what's going to happen? You have everlasting life and, and you're going to be raised up at the last day. And 14 verses before, what does Jesus say? If you see me and believe on me, what's going to happen? You're going to have everlasting life and you're going to be raised up at the last day. It is a perfect parallel. And in fact, then if you go on to verse 47, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. So when someone says to you, no, you have to eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood in order to have everlasting life, one answer is to take them to the exact parallel of verse 40 and say, well, then why does Jesus say here that the thing that is required is to see him and believe on him? Now, that raises one question. Does Jesus mean that these are two different things? There are two options. One option is to see and believe on him, and one option is to eat and drink his body, and blood. Do we think that's more likely, or do we think it's more likely that Jesus is saying, they're the same thing? I think by the precise parallel that Jesus is giving here, he clearly means it's the same thing. To eat of his body and drink of his blood is the same thing, if you will, 
as seeing him and believing on him because everything else is the same. That person has everlasting life and he will be raised up at the last day. And similarly, in the same parallelism, to see him and to believe on him is to what? Eat of his body and drink of his blood. To partake of him, to feed on him. And that's what I'm convinced John 6 Verse 53 through 58 is all about seeing the bread of life and feeding on him by faith. Here's also why I'm convinced, not only because of this spiritual connection, this direct parallel between what Jesus has already told us, but secondly, notice what Jesus says about spiritual union. Look in verse 55. We're just going right through this passage. 53 and 54 have this direct parallel to seeing and believing on the Son. Notice verse 55. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Now stop there. That word there, indeed, is meat indeed, food indeed. It is drink indeed. It's connected to the exact same word. It's from from the same root word, has the same general meaning idea. When Jesus says that he is the true bread, he is the true bread that comes down from heaven. I want you to think about that. When he says, I am the true bread, he is contrasting to the physical manna, the physical bread that the children of Israel received. He's saying, I'm something above and beyond that. I am the real stuff. Now he comes back and he says, my body, my flesh is food. It's meat indeed. It's the real food. It's the real stuff. Do you know what it reminds me of? when the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness and Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's the real food, the real stuff. Now, I want you to think about what a Roman Catholic would say. A Roman Catholic would say it exactly the opposite. They would say that bread is Christ's body indeed. That cup is Christ's blood indeed. But do you see how Jesus does it exactly the opposite? He says, my body is real food. It's the real true stuff. And my blood is the real true drink. Now, here's the point that I'm getting at. Jesus is trying to communicate similarly to what he's always been communicating throughout this passage. He is contrasting what is physical and temporal with what is spiritual and eternal. And he's saying, my body and my blood are the real, true, spiritual, eternal food that is not taken by eating with a mouth. It is taken by receiving in one's soul. Now, notice verse 56. It's the same idea. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. Now, again, I want you to think about what the Roman Catholic would say. The Roman Catholic would say, when you eat the body and blood of Christ, you are receiving the physical body of Christ in you. He is coming into you. But notice what Jesus says here. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood 
dwells in me. You see the difference? Yes, he says, and I in him, but the first thing he focuses in, if you participate with me, if you partake of me, you are entering me. You are dwelling in me. The exact opposite of what the Roman Catholic Church is teaching. You say, why am I emphasizing this? Because he is emphasizing not a physical connection, but a spiritual union, that you become one with me when you partake of me. Now keep on going. Look at an analogy here in verse 57. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father... So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. Now, I wish I had a whiteboard here just to draw out this analogy because, again, it's showing a spiritual union, not a physical one. What's the analogy? God sent me, and I live by him. Is Jesus referring to, in a sense, a physical connection with his Father or a spiritual one? I live by him is a spiritual reference to the bond of the Holy Spirit between God the Father and God the Son. He's talking about a spiritual union. And he applies the same analogy. If you eat of me, just like I am spiritually united with my Father, he sent me and I live by him. In the same way, if you eat of me spiritually, you will live by me. A spiritual union is in view here, not directly a physical act of eating food or of participating in eating the bread and the fruit of the vine in communion. You see, again, what are you getting to? I'm getting to the fact that Jesus is, is again, holding out this contrast between physical bread and spiritual bread and the reception of that spiritual bread by faith, by seeing and believing in Jesus Christ that brings about eternal life. And I think there's one more clue that really helps cement it, that helps me, helps seal this for me, that Jesus is intending to be read figuratively here and not literally. Go ahead to verse number 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this isn't hard saying, who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? He's saying, you're having such a hard time believing that I'm the bread that came down from heaven. What happens if you see me go back up? Are you going to believe then? It's It's a good challenge of them. But notice what comes next. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you that believe not. Now, again, I want you to divorce this from taking this out of context. I want you to step aside from that for a moment. Because it might be very easy for you if we were just to interpret this verse out of context to say, well, what flesh is he talking about? Well, he's talking about he's talking about my flesh, my lower nature, my body, myself, like we talk about walking in the spirit or walking in the flesh. But I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if that's what he means. 
I'm actually grateful to Pastor Mark Minnick for bringing this out. I think it's a very helpful insight. Do you know when Jesus uses that same Greek word for flesh in this chapter? What is he talking about? He's talk, not talking about you're in my flesh. Whose flesh is he talking about? His. You have to eat my flesh. Same word. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So what might it mean when Jesus says it is the spirit that quickens? That word literally means to bring to life. What has he been talking about this whole time? There is physical food that only leads to death. And there is spiritual food that leads where? To life. And now when people say we don't get it, this is a hard saying. I can't accept eating your flesh and drinking your blood. Jesus looks at them and says, well, here's the problem. It's the spirit that gives life. I've been talking about spiritual life, spiritual food. It's only the spirit that can't do that. The flesh, the physical body, profits nothing. I think it's a very tenable and maybe even the most appropriate interpretation of this passage to say that Jesus is intending to communicate to them, don't you understand I'm talking about spiritual things, not physical? Don't you understand I'm talking about spiritual realities that give way to life, not simply eating my physical flesh and my physical blood? The body, that, that physical sense profits nothing in the context of what I'm talking about here. He says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. It is the words on a spiritual plane that I intend to communicate to you. Seeing and believing in me is feeding on me and is gaining life from me. That is the last reason, again, why I'm convinced that this passage has absolutely nothing to say about communion. Nothing to say about the Lord's Supper. Nothing to say about the idea that the, blood, uh, the bread and the fruit of the vine that we drink, the bread and the cup, somehow magically or mystically turn into the body of Christ. That simply is not in view here. Because when we read it in context, and understanding the contrast that Jesus is making and the connections that he is making through this whole passage, in my view, we see clearly that Jesus is intending us to take these as plainly spiritual in their understanding, connected to faith that sees him, that believes on him, and that in doing so partakes of him. Now, I want to draw two applications for us on this tonight. The first is this. We've talked a lot about what this passage doesn't mean. But I want to say clearly what this passage does mean. It means that what is essential to your salvation and to your ongoing spiritual life is that you know how to partake of Jesus Christ, to feed on him. Now again, this analogy is not new to me, but it is very helpful there are all kinds of people that know how to write about food and talk about food and analyze and assess the chemical composition of food and all the elements that make up into it, and yet they do not eat of it. They do not gain sustenance of it. They only look at it. I remember my roommate in college was a very gregarious and 
and a very kind young man. He enjoyed food, as his figure would attest. And I remember he would sit in our dorm room, and he'd watch the Food Network. And he would just sit and watch it and watch it and watch it. And I said, I I just remember being so confused. Why do you watch the Food Network? You're watching this food, but you can't eat it. What are you getting from this? Well, think about it for the Christian There are all kinds of people who will come and listen to a sermon. They'll even read their Bible in the morning. They'll listen to a devotional. They'll attend a Bible study. And they'll look at the food. And they'll analyze the contents of the food. And they'll try to break down the spiritual food. But they never eat it. Why? Because they don't accept it by faith because they never see the person behind it, the Son of God, who is over all the pages of this book. They never accept it by faith. They never savor it. They never taste it. They never chew on it. They never bring it into their life for substance and for sustenance. And I want to say to you, whether you're sitting here with, with us this evening or whether you're participating by live stream, My question for you tonight is, have you been saved by feeding on Jesus Christ? By truly bringing him in to yourself, not by chewing on some communion elements, but by putting your faith on him and in him, and as a result, truly feeding of him, partaking of him. If you have not, eaten his body and drunk his blood by the participation of faith, Jesus says, you have no everlasting life. You are not going to be raised up at the last day to eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth. Have you eaten of Jesus? The second thing is this. Not only, as I said, is this essential to your spiritual, your salvation, it is essential to the way you relate to Jesus Tomorrow, tonight before you go to bed, it is going to say this. You are either going to come at these words that are spirit and they are life, and you are either going to simply assess and analyze them, or you are going to feed on them. By faith, to take these words and bring them in to your very being. You know, friends, I said this morning, That communion is a symbol. The elements of communion are a symbol. The bread is nothing other than bread. Yes, as Anne Askew says, it will get moldy if you leave it and let it sit there. There's nothing mystical or magical about it. The cup is simply a cup of grape juice. There is nothing special or magical or mystical about it. And yet what we said this morning is symbols are critical because symbols can bring you into touch with the reality And every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we are taking a physical, tangible reminder of what Jesus has done for us and of his love for us. And we are feeding on it in a way that can feed our souls when we approach them by faith. When we allow those tangible, physical symbols to speak to the faith 
that we have to hear Jesus saying, take this bread and feel how much I love you. Take this cup and as you taste it, reflect by faith again on what I have done for you in my sacrificial death and our souls are fed. There's no, nothing physical or mystical or magical about it. It's simply by faith meeting with Jesus and experiencing his love by the physical symbols that he has given us to participate in. And that's why I would say, if you'll allow me to have this kind of connection, John 6 has nothing to do with communion. But communion has everything to do with John 6. Say, wait a second. John 6 is not about communion. But communion, in a sense, is about John 6 because it's about the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And it's about approaching Jesus Christ by faith and accepting what he has done when he gave his body and his blood for the life of the world. And it's about feeding on the person of Jesus Christ when we are there with the symbols that he has given to represent exactly that. Yes, when Jesus said, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. That has nothing to do with the doctrine of transubstantiation or anything else about communion. And yet in that same way, Communion is such a beautiful picture for us of what the real purpose of this is, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and our reception of it for ourselves by faith. So friends, I hope this has cleared up any confusion in your own mind about what this passage says and what it means. But even more importantly than that, I hope that you will live out the reality of this passage even tonight and this week. By faith, feed on Jesus Christ. By faith, see him and taste him and savor him and allow him to be that life that you participate in, that you partake of and connects you to that eternal life which is only through him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the words of our Lord, some of which may appear hard to be understood, but the words that he gave us are spirit and they are life. So Father, do this work, we pray. Allow us to feed on you even tonight. Strengthen our faith and may we partake of you even this evening. Let's pause for a moment. Allow the Spirit of God to speak to us. Do we know what it is to feed on Jesus Christ? Do we know what it is to eat of his body and drink of his blood? To participate in his sacrifice once for all for our sins? This is the real necessity of our spiritual life, both to be saved and to live our lives being fed by him.